Okay, so this is the last Sunday of the year, right? And so every last Sunday, there's always something that happens within churches. And it's, and, and it's, a, it's um, we don't know what we're going to preach about, okay? And, and usually what we do is we have this series, and then it goes all the way up to Advent, we get to Advent, we do the Advent series, and then you usually have the last week of the year, and, and usually the first Sunday of the year, and you have very little planned, and so then I try and find someone else to fill in who has something to say, and then they can't, and so then I'm here, Okay? Um, that being said, what you'll hear today will be the greatest sermon you've ever heard. Okay? Uh, <laughs> I begin to think about, okay, what do I want to talk about? What am I passionate about? What is this something? Okay, we're gonna, you know, we just finished Romans. We're going to be starting up Mark in February. What do we want to talk about? And here's what I landed on. I, I, I kind of realized I've never, ever preached about Christ as a child. Right? We just finished Advent. We've talked, spent all this time on, okay, he came, baby in a manger, no room at the inn, you know, probably because it was Christmas. And, uh, you know, all of this stuff about the baby and the Advent and the coming of Christ and he's coming again and all this glory and it's this amazing story. And then we usually fast forward all the way to, to year 30. Right? So, so we have the manger story, which we love. He's born. He's here. And then we go all the way to age 30, usually with his baptism by John the Baptist, three years of ministry culminating in his death for our sins. Okay, this is usually where our minds go. What I want to do today is just take, take some time to talk about Christ as a boy. What happens after he's born? All the way up until 30. So we're going to cover 30 years in about 35 minutes. Okay? And so this will be, hopefully, an opportunity for us to do two things. One, learn. Just, just very simply, let's... Let's learn this morning what the Bible says about Christ as a child, because it doesn't often get talked about. Okay? Um, and, and then two, I pray that in the learning of that, that it would move us as individuals and as a church to understand the humility of Jesus, right? the plan of God, that he decided in the midst of how he was going to redeem the world, he said, this is my idea. I'm going to put myself in one of them and I'm going to live the life the way they have to live it, but I'll do it perfectly. And so I hope we get a little bit more of the humanity of Christ this morning, because I think we miss it sometimes when we just focus on these three amazing years of ministry culminating in the death of our Savior. Okay? I think we miss it, and his resurrection. And so we'll look at him as a child. And here's the deal. Um, the Gospels don't talk a lot about Jesus as a boy. The whole Bible doesn't talk about Jesus as a boy all that much. And so you look at the Gospel of Mark, there's nothing. The Gospel of John, there's nothing. Gospel of Matthew, you get a couple stories about how he moved to Egypt and came back. Okay? Really, it's only in Luke that we get any real account of what Christ went through as a child. Okay? And so we're going to pick it up there, starting in, uh, in, in Luke 2, verse 22 through 24. So if you have a Bible... Turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring you a Bible. Don't be shy. I want you to follow along. There it is. There's one. Go ahead. Hands up. Bible's coming around. There you go. Vermont. Don't have a Bible. Come on. Roosevelt Community Church in the house. Okay. Um, uh, so Luke 2, 22 through 24. Before we get there, I want to read this verse that I think shapes this message for me quite a bit. And shapes really the way I think through Christ quite a bit, even after reading you know, all the Gospels, all the stories of Jesus. And it's in John 21, 25, he says this, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written? I suppose that the world itself could not contain the, book, the books that would be written. Okay? So, so what John's doing, he gets to the end of his Gospel, and he says, listen, I've told you about a lot of things that Christ did. But if we were truly to sit down and list and write out everything that Christ has done, 
there would be not enough room in this world that the books could fit. Okay. And I think what our mind goes to, and my mind went to initially when I read John 21, was, man, he must have done a lot more miracles in his three years. He might have had a lot more interactions. So we you know, we know the woman at the well. We know the woman caught in adultery. We know the, the bleeding woman. We know his interactions with his disciples, calling of the apostles, and these great stories in the three years. But, man, there was probably more stories. There were more miracles. There were more things he did, and that's true. But I wonder how many of the things that we could testify about the greatness and the beauty of Jesus happened between years 1 and years 30. How many things did this boy do? This was still God in the flesh, fully God and fully man at the same time. And this is the tension that we wrestle with this morning. And I hope, again, that we capture a bit more of his humanity. I was having this conversation with my father-in-law just last night. And we were talking about just how did Christ manage this? What did it look like for him to be fully God, right? 100% God and yet 100% man at the same time. How did he work this out, okay? And so immediately my mind went to Eddie Murphy, Okay, like all of us. Okay, and um, and so how many people? And listen, today not a lot of us here, so we got to interact. I get some amens going, whatever you want. Um, how many people here have seen Coming to America? Okay, pretty good film, right? Uh, for those who haven't seen it, um, we're just going to watch it right now. So, just kidding. Okay, Coming to America is is uh, I can't say it's a brilliant film or a critically acclaimed film, but it's a good movie. Okay. Eddie Murphy is the star. Arsenio Hall is in it, so you know it's good. Woo, woo, woo. Okay. How many people even know that reference? You know what? You guys are struggling right now. Uh, Eddie Murphy is the prince of Zamunda. Okay? Zamunda. And, and Zamunda is not a, re- a real nation, so don't go looking for it. But in the movie, he's the prince of Zamunda, an African nation. And he's being given this bride. He says, okay, this is who you're going to marry. And he says, you know what? That's not what I want for my life. I want to be able to choose my bride. I'm going to go to America, and I'm going to find my bride in America. So he goes to New York City. And he gets to New York City, and he brings along Arsenio Hall as his kind of butler, but they're just friends there, and they both get, get jobs at this place called McDowell's which is the competitor with McDonald's. Okay? They have the golden, uh, I can't remember what it was, but hoops or instead of arches or whatever. So he goes to McDonald's and he's a janitor. And he gets an apartment, but he gets an apartment in like the poorest place he can find in all of New York City. Right? There's like, he walks into his room and there's one of those death sketches on the ground where a guy had just died. Okay? And so this is his life now. He's a janitor, a poor janitor, and has nothing. And that's what he wants to portray to the women of New York City because he does not want to marry a woman because of his wealth or his riches. And so, so, so bear with me on this metaphor, okay? At the very same time as Eddie Murphy is the Prince of Zamunda, this does not change, his identity is still that, he's also now a poor janitor in New York City living in a terrible place. He is 100% still a janitor. He's 100% still engaged in doing the things in New York City. But at the very same time, his identity is still fully as the Prince Zamunda. And at any given moment, he can get on the phone with his father and call and get extra money to take care of his life. But he chooses not to. So in this movie, Eddie Murphy could at any moment in all the dire straits that he finds himself, he gets there, all his luggage gets stolen, he could just call back to his father and say, hey, you know what, all the luggage stolen, I need more money, send it over. But he chooses not to. Because he chooses to present himself in such a way to accomplish his mission. Jesus, God in the flesh, 
has full power, authority, every wealth, everything we can think at his fingertips, and yet he chooses willingly, humbly, to come to embody a man, to be in this world, to live the life we could never live, die the death we deserve. At any moment, hear me, at any moment in his entire 33-year existence, he could have contacted his father and sent angels to retrieve him. At any given moment, he could have employed anything in this world to bless him or to change his circumstance. He does none of it. Instead, he humbly chooses to remain 100% fully man that he might die the death we needed him to die. 100% God, 100% man. So there you go. If you ever have someone ask you, coming to America is your answer. Okay? You're welcome. You're welcome. Now, let's pick up where the Christmas story ends. Okay? Luke 2, 22-24 says this, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so for Old Testament law, Jesus is going to be circumcised. Forty days, then the circumcision. So they're taking him to be circumcised. That's where he's going. Okay, so we see that they're already, listen, they're Jews, they're law-abiding, they're focusing on being holy before God. And so they bring Christ to be circumcised. So we know it kind of grows up in a, in a religious family, which we can assume it's Mary, right? It's Joseph, they're Jews. But also, we also find out that he's probably somewhat poor. We find that a bit in the, in the, uh, in the birth story, but we also find that when they go to give this sacrifice, a wealthier person would have brought a lamb. Okay? A wealthier person during this sacrifice would have brought a lamb or, or some other animal of greater worth and value than two turtle doves. Okay? And so that kind of colors a bit for us the whole turtle dove thing. When you guys hear, you know, two turtle doves and a partridge, you don't think of them being slaughtered, okay? And there's no kids here old enough to know that, but that's actually what they're drawing in the coloring book in the back, okay? No? Slaughtered? No. And so that's a sacrifice. So we see again Christ, not only does he come, not only does he humble himself and choose in the moment, what, what, not to employ all of the wealth and all the things he could have employed, he actually finds himself in extremely meager circumstances. The God of the universe, when, when thinking about how he was going to redeem the world, he didn't look down and, and, and choose moving in with Uncle Phil, right? No, he moves into a poor neighborhood with a poor family the God of the universe, the one who created all things, now finds himself forced to live on the meager pieces of this earth. Okay. Keep going. Luke 2, 39-40. The story continues. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So here we go. These two verses, verses 39 and 40 in Luke 2, are the only two verses that we have for Christ's life from 41 days in to 12 years old. Okay, we had nothing else. From 41 days old to 12 years old, this is what we get is two verses, 39 and 40, and we only find out a couple things. So let's fill in the blanks on some other stuff that we know just from other parts of the Bible. Okay, so he had siblings. Okay, he had siblings. He had four brothers. He had two sisters. Brothers were James, who ended up heading out the church in Jerusalem. Brother Joseph, or Joseph, 
Judas, not the Judas that would betray him, but rather Jude, who is the author of the New Testament letter, and then Simon, okay? which is unfortunate, right? So you had Jesus, <laughs> Jesus, James, Joseph, and Jude, and then poor Simon is the only non-J. So he probably got made fun of, right? And you just wonder, I mean, if you guys, and as more I thought about this this week, I have an older brother, right? And this began to think about my interactions with him, and I cannot imagine how Christ made it through having brothers without sinning, okay? If you have a sibling, regardless of gender, you have sinned, okay? Because they're ridiculously dumb, okay? I was thinking about some stories with my brother this week. There was this time we were watching Nebraska versus Miami. It was back in like 1994. NCAA football game. It was a bowl, maybe Orange Bowl or something like that. My brother's rooting for Miami, so naturally I decided to root for Nebraska. Okay? Don't even care. What happens is Miami goes up with just a little bit of time left. My brother runs into my room. He's bragging. Ha, ha, ha. Miami, going to win it. And makes fun of me. Probably says some choice words or whatever. And I say, all right, man. You know, and there was like 35, 45 seconds left. It's like, okay, we're, we're done, and Pete's going to win this one. And then all of a sudden, Nebraska wins on the last play of the game as time expires. And so me, being the brother who's six and a half years younger, decides not to be all that humble and runs back into the living room and does a dance with my pants at my ankles in my whitey tighties, just, hey, buddy, you know, and I'm dancing and stuff. And then he proceeds to beat me up for the next 10 minutes, okay? My mom comes home. I'm literally bleeding, you know, that type of thing. And I just begin to think about this. Listen, Jesus had brothers. Jesus had sisters. Jesus had a family. Jesus was not just like this random, obscure, awkward dude who didn't spend any time doing anything that we would relate to. So I wonder what was it like for him when there was all of this stuff going on in his family, when his brother was doing something so ridiculous like rooting for Miami. When his sister was doing something, he just said, I don't know what's going on. Or when they had to set the dinner table and Jesus was the only one serving. When they had to do the chores around the house and he's the only one vacuuming. <laughs> Probably not vacuuming. He's sweeping. What was going on in his heart? How did he process? How did he deal with this? It's fully God. It's fully God. This, this man, Jesus having to deal with just life as we know life, and yet does it perfectly without sin. That's our Savior. That's the guy. He, he was who we needed Him to be. In every situation, in every instance, He knew how to engage with family, knew how to engage with strangers. Just think about all the stories, all the, all the interactions you have, right? Ethan and Haley, just think about right now, how many times you guys clashing, they, all those thoughts you've ever thought, shouldn't have them, okay? Just kidding. Jesus loved perfectly, okay? What did that, what did that look like for him? What did, it, what did it look like in the midst of it for the brothers, I, I imagine, too? Because it's not like nobody knew who Jesus was or what he came for. So what was it like for Simon? What was it like for Joseph? Why can't you be more like Jesus? And their answer, well, I'm not God, right? That's probably the start. What was it like in the interactions? And listen, I like to think through these things because it reminds me that this Savior is not some far-off God who will not and cannot understand my life. But in everything, fully jumps into it, experiences it, and yet comes out the other end perfect because we needed Him too. Okay? Keep going. 
Now from 12 years old to 30 years old, we get a whopping 12 verses. Okay? So I know I didn't give you too much there, but from 41 days to 12 days, we're talking siblings. He had family. He had his mom. He had his dad. He was doing work. I'm guessing chores, playing sports, whatever it might have looked like. This is probably his life. Okay? Maybe started in on the carpenter trade at that point. But here we go. We get 12 verses for years 12 to 30. Luke 21, 41 through 52 says this. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went on a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. So let me just recap the story real briefly. Okay, the entire family decides, hey, okay, we're going to go to the Feast of the Passover, so we make that pilgrimage, they go to Jerusalem. They get there, they do the feast, they put in all the rituals, and then they decide to go. At some point, little 12-year-old Jesus steps to the side and sneaks away and disappears. Now, the family realizes right away, no. They leave, and then a day later, they begin to ask, hey, where... Where's Jesus? Where's where's the 12-year-old Savior of the world? Where's that guy? And so then they begin to ask, hey, uh, hey, have you seen Jesus? Because we can't find him. No, no, I haven't seen him. Check with... And they go over here, have you seen Jesus? No, I I haven't seen him. And they begin to realize, we left Jesus. Okay? So in other words, home alone is is, is really just a Christian allegory. Okay? That's all it is. Macaulay Culkin is the Jesus figure, obviously. They leave Jesus in Jerusalem. And so then they make the day's journey to go all the way back to hopefully find him. Okay. And so then they head back. Okay. So here we go. Verse 46, continue the story. After three days, and let me say three days, it doesn't mean three days of searching, three total days. Okay, so probably on that first day back. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Okay. So they go back, and they're looking for Jesus, and they're probably thinking, like, why? This is so unlike him to just disappear. What's he up to? What's he doing? And which really even speaks to maybe a bit of Christ's character as a child. Again, like, he was probably very trustworthy, so it was okay that he kind of slipped to the side. They weren't super worried because he probably hadn't made a ton of mistakes Right, Judas probably was always the one scraping up his knees, getting out of there, getting in trouble. Jesus was always the responsible one. So why would he do this? And so they go back and then they find him and he's with the teachers. He's with these people that are talking and teaching of the law of God. And they find him sitting there and he's doing two things. Okay, He's doing two things. He's, uh, he's listening and he's asking questions. Okay, Listen, Look at this. Jesus, God in the flesh sits at the feet of other men, listens, and then asks questions. Okay. What we see here is this picture of Christ, the Savior, God in the flesh, learning, growing, maturing. This is growing in wisdom and in strength and in stature. That he's getting smarter. Think about this. Jesus had to learn, had to grow. Now, I wonder, and we were talking about this last night, does that mean that Jesus didn't somewhere in there know everything? He was still God. So did he really know all the answers? So he was just sitting there, but he still takes the posture of a learner. He sits at the feet of other men, and he asks questions, and he listens. 
the God of the universe, listened and learned. Okay. Again, what a beautiful picture of the humanity and the humility of Jesus. I take it that he probably, he probably knew what his, what his future was, where he was headed. He's like, I've got to get this stuff down. People are going to be asking me questions. I'm going to inaugurate my ministry by standing before people and quoting Isaiah 60. I've got to know this stuff. And so he learns and he grows and he does all this. I mean, he was just, he was wise beyond his age. Okay. You guys ever see kids like that? Grandkids, if you're a grandparent, you see grandkids like that. I was just talking to my buddy, uh, a pastor down in Tempe. His name's Tim Anderson, and he has this granddaughter. We've actually talked about her a couple times here. Her name's Elliot. And she's, I think she's five years old now. And last year, so this would have made her four. You know, she might be six, so five years old. She's, uh, she's looking for Tim. Tim is, is babysitting her and her little brother, James. So like five and three at this point. And Tim has an incredibly terrible flu at the time. So he's sweating. He's got the fever going. He's coughing. There's lots of just fluids coming out. And he's just feeling terrible. And so they are in the living room. He is in the kitchen. And he gets so tired and so hot, he decides to lay on the tile floor, curled up like a little baby. Elliot walks in with James, grabs him by the hand, walks in, sees Tim. And, and you would think there'd be some type of alarm on her. Instead, she says, Well, James... Looks like we're on our own. And they walk back in and eat their dinner by themselves. <laughs> Five years old. I picture Jesus very much like this. And again, some of this is just very all speculation. But I just wonder, I mean, he's probably just, he's wise. He was that kid that's always saying the stuff that was like crazy witty. How did you come up with that? Why do you think this way? This is who Christ was. We find him listening and learning and sitting at the feet of other men. Okay? This is a child prodigy of sorts. Okay, so here we go. Keep going. Verse 48. Let's continue the story. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. So Mary and Joseph run back. They see him from a distance, right? You you get the picture, get the imagery. They see him from a distance. He's there. He's listening. He's asking questions. He's learning from these men. He's at the temple. And you can just kind of see them running across the temple courts, getting to Jesus, grabbing him by the arm. What did you do? Why have you done this to us? You've scared me to death. And his response is, Why? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Now, if he were not God, like I can only imagine if, if Finley does this in 12 years, okay, he's getting grounded, like seriously grounded or something else. I don't know. It would, hey, Finley, you disappeared for three days. Oh, I had to be here. Okay. Joseph and Mary. We'll see the response in just a moment, but that's his response to him. Hey, did you not know that I, this is where I'm supposed to be? I'm supposed to be in my father's house right now. Now, you guys missed it. Maybe you shouldn't have left. That's on you, parents, but, but I, I'm supposed to be here. And now we see what? Jesus, fully God. Fully knowing who he was. 
knowing he was the son of God. That he, listen, you understood Mary and Joseph, they're my parents, right? On this earth, that's... I, but my father is the father. And I must be in his house. God, Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing his mission, and intentionally being in that place, right? I just, this beautiful picture of this 12-year-old boy with the weight of, I'm the son of God. You imagine growing in wisdom, growing in stature, growing in strength, knowing all these things, listening and learning before the greatest teachers of the day of the law. He probably was reading prophecies and learning prophecies about himself. Like they would probably read something. He's like, yeah, that's me. (laughs) That one's me too. And he did that over and over and over again. Yeah, that's me. A 12-year-old boy, fully God, because we needed him to be. He had to be fully God, and he had to be fully man. Okay? Had to be these two things. I wonder what it was like for him to just be in school. What was it like? So he leaves, you know, okay, everything's kind of settled. He goes home with his parents. Uh, you know, they, they do different things, but what would, what was it like for him to just, to just walk around and be amongst friends and, and, and people and, and daily interaction as a teenager? I mean, how did he enter? I mean, middle school is the worst, right? If you've been in 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, everyone is terrible. Okay? There's, there's literally no one without a multitude of sin in those places. Okay? Everyone just, yeah. What was it like for Jesus to navigate middle school? You know, just these ideas, right? What was it like for him? What was it like when, when he had to, you know, like, hey, who's, who's your dad? Who are you here with? He's like, ah, oh, my dad's God. I mean, how does he navigate these, these questions? Again, I love this. Again, the beauty of God and Jesus, fully, fully God and yet fully man at the same time. Okay. Verse 51, let's keep going. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I love, here's what Luke does. He's, he's very cautious here. Luke gives us verse 51 and say, listen, he was still submissive. So don't think that he was breaking commandment 5. He was still honoring his father and mother. Don't think that Jesus ever sinned in this moment. No, Jesus was at the time fully submissive and never in the wrong. And so he was supposed to be in his father's house, so he was in his father's house. His parents come and they get him and say, listen, it's time to go. And he goes fully submissive at the same time. He's fully man. Saying, listen, okay, just like everyone else, I'm going to obey the law that Moses gave. So my father and mother, they say this, I'm, yeah, I'm going. Fully submissive to the fifth commandment and to every law because we needed him to be. Fully man, you see Jesus, okay, Jesus, son of God, God in the flesh. His parents come and get him and say, it's time to go. Okay. And he goes, willingly, submissively, fully man. Constantly, this back and forth, this dual nature of Christ, constantly back and forth, showing up at the same time, a little bit more, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30, I mean, at the same, always fully God, fully man. Because we needed Him to be. Can't stress that. We all, listen, last, the last four or five weeks we've been talking Advent, we needed Him to come. He had to come and redeem. He had to be born. All the prophecies said this. Listen, we needed His life to be perfect. 
it needed to be a sacrifice of a man. One sacrifice for all sacrifices. We needed him to be fully God so he could accomplish his task. Both at the same time. This is what we needed. And so he comes and fulfills it. <coughs> excuse me, full, fulfills it for us. And the last verse that we get for all of Jesus' childhood, because after verse 52, the next time that he pops up again, the next thing that we really talk about is John the Baptist. Is him getting baptized and inaugurating his ministry for three years. Where we get all the miracles, we get all the stories, we get all the stuff. So we have again this 18 year gap and all we get is verse 52. In 18 years we get he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. That's all we get. What was it like for Jesus to grow up for those 18 years? To go through, you know, high school, right? Was he prom king? You know, that type of thing. What was it like for him to go on, for him to jump into the carpenter trade fully and pour his life into that? How did he market his business? I mean, how did he work with other people? Did he train other people to become master carpenters like him? Did he have a bunch of little guys running around? What was Christ like? And we don't know. We don't know. We just know that it was perfect. We know that in every instance that I can look back on my, from 12 to 30, and there are a lot of memories in there, right? From 12 to 30, a lot of memories. And a lot of them I made the wrong decision. Most of them I made the wrong decision. And yet every single step of the way, Jesus makes the right decision. Fully obedient, fully man and fully God. Unbelievable. We're going to sing a song here in the second set. It's a song that was written uh, by this guy Garth Bostick who used to lead our worship down at Redemption Tempe. And the song is called Flesh and Bone. And it's, it's easily one of my favorite songs that we sing here. But some of the lyrics are just so powerful for me as I begin to envision this, this, this baby that we celebrated for all of Advent growing up and learning and being formed and shaped by this world to become the Savior we need Him to become. Okay? And, and I just want to read a few of the lyrics. And one of them is, The Word must learn to speak. Right? John 1.1. 1, 1, right? The Word of God. The Word made flesh. So the Word Himself had to learn how to speak. It's not like Jesus came out, He wasn't born, and was like, Hey. Right? No, no. He comes out, He cried, He sobbed, He makes the weird noises that Finley makes. Right? He just... And then eventually he learned the alphabet. And then eventually he learned to put words together. And then he learned to put words and words and words to create sentences. And we have the Word of God learning how to speak words. Amazing. The humility and the humanity of Jesus. The second one is um, the sky's sustainer needs air to breathe. So the one who holds this whole thing together, Colossians 1, right? Everything is held by Him, through Him, for Him, all of that. Every molecule in the air that you are breathing this very moment exists and is held together by Jesus. And yet here this baby was. And he needed to learn to breathe. He needed to breathe the same air that He created that we might have life. God in the flesh. 
and it says this in the chorus part of it, it says, You needed the blood to shed for our sin. Aside for a spear, thorns wait for your skin. You needed the body to be lifted from dead on a stone. God with flesh and bone. The God of the universe had to come in and embody us, embody man, because these are the things that needed to happen. He had to fulfill the purpose. A body must be crushed. Isaiah 53, right? He'll be crushed for our iniquities. There must, there had to have been punishment. There had to have been wrath poured out. And so it was poured out on Jesus. He needed the body, right? To be killed, to be slaughtered, that we could receive life. This same baby that we celebrated for the last four weeks, right? That we kept talking about all the beauty and he came and it's all this. And we sang these great hymns and these great Christmas songs, these carols, speaking about Emmanuel, God with us, all this beautiful stuff. That baby was God then and he was God the moment that he stretched his arms and died on a cross for our sins and he was certainly God when he rose three days later. But the entire time, he was also fully one of us. And so my hope this morning is, listen, let's, let's just learn a little bit. And there's a lot of stuff in there. There's just, hey, let's think about these things. I think it helps us understand just the reality and the humanity and the humility of Jesus. But also I think it can move us and comfort us in times like this. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15 says this, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. So hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay. I think in times like these, and, and listen, there's just stuff, that, stuff we talked about man, over Advent, all the brokenness happening across our country, across our world, the brokenness right here in our own city, losing Officer Stewart, and just this, that entire situation the passing of Kenya Green, the reality of death and darkness in our world. Okay? We can sit easily and just say, well, Jesus, listen, you were God and this was easy for you. You could just come in power. You could do whatever you want. But in humility, willingly, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, put himself in meager circumstances that we would be able to look at him and say, man, you are the perfect example for everything we need and everything we could ever desire. That in everything that we deal with today, Jesus fully understands, has dealt with, and can lead us in the way everlasting. So we worship, and we find ourselves in thanksgiving. We worship. We're going to sing some more songs, right? We're going to move our hearts in thanksgiving because God had a plan that involved coming down and being fully like one of you and one of me, and yet still fully himself because we needed him to do that. Because there was no other way. Because without it, we are lost forever. And so we sing and we celebrate. And this is the rest of the story. This is so, and we're going to jump into Mark in February 9th, I think, is when we're going to start the book of Mark. And we're going to pick up where we're kind of leaving off today. Okay, so Jesus, right? And then we're going to jump into his baptism and get into the rest of his life. We'll focus for about geez, I don't know, a year and a half, two years on the three years of his ministry, okay? But I want you guys to carry this, okay? Carry this thought, man, the baby that we just celebrated, he grew up, 
And he had to learn, he had to grow, and he had to enter into our world because we needed him to. And so worship and sing praise and thanksgiving. And as we move into 2015, you know, and you've got all these resolutions and things you want to change and stuff, okay, just, just think through the lens of the gospel and nothing else. You don't need to prove yourself. It's, it's, it's all by him, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just getting to take a little glimpse, a little moment at the end of the year to just look at a bit more of your life. God, I, I'll be honest, I don't spend a ton of time thinking about you for 30 years before everything we normally read. But we thank you in those 30 years, you never, you never messed up. You never blew it. In a world and in a personal reality that every day I blow it. There's something I dropped the ball and there's someone that I probably hurt. There's something that I think about wrongly. There's some way that I blow it. And God, although we don't get to read too much about it, for 30 years you never did. And it's not that you just had this far off weird existence that we didn't have. God, we, we've had that experience We've lived those 30 years, many of us. God, and you never messed up. Thank you that you loved us that much and that your character is so beautiful, so perfect, and so godlike that it was never a choice for you. God, thank you that we can sit here and we will sing the songs that we sing. We will celebrate. We will worship you. We will talk about the gospel. We will share it with this city because you never messed up. So, God, we just, we just stand here today thankful, God, where we're apathetic. Make us more thankful. Come in. Reveal to us our sin, God, and lead us. So, God, thank you that you were, you were just always the best in all the ways that mattered. Bless us today as we sing and respond and just seek to make more of you in our city. Amen.